Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I am your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. First, I'd like to welcome you all back after our break. I hope you enjoyed the last few weeks and maybe even use that time to check out some of our older episodes that always stay relevant for families. This week, we're back and talking about the transition to parenthood. Now, in this transition, many of us realize that who we are is going to fundamentally change. We don't know how, we don't know how we're going to cope with it, but we expect a change. What we don't often think about is the effect on our relationship if we happen to be entering parenthood as a teen. How we relate to our partner can shift fundamentally, and often the first few years post-parenthood is a tumultuous time for couples and results in a higher than usual rate of separation. Why does this happen? What can couples do to prevent this and stay together? Joining me this week is Nora Wright, couples therapist and founder of The Family Hive, where she teaches Gottman's Bringing Baby Home program to help parents adapt to the transition to parenthood without wanting to kill each other. If you feel that your relationship has suffered or you're anticipating a new arrival and worried how that will change the dynamic of your relationship, don't fret, things can always change. So pleased to have with me today, Nora Wright. Nora is an emotionally focused therapy couples therapist, certified lactation counselor, hypnobirthing instructor, and new parent educator. She holds a master's in regional planning from Cornell University and a master's in social work from Westchester University of Pennsylvania. She is certified as a Gottman educator for the Bringing Baby Home program and Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work program, and as a hypnobirthing instructor in the Mongan Method. Nora is the co-founder of The Family Hive, an education and coaching space that supports growing families to influence their baby's emotional and physical health outcomes through birth preparation, informed early parenting, and a strong relationship between couples transitioning into parenthood together. Nora works both in the United States and in Mexico and is an advocate for understanding and meeting the needs of infants and all of us who were once infants. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me on. I'm really excited for our conversation. Oh, this is, I'm really excited to talk about this because we are going to delve into the issue of that transition to parenthood. Yeah. And that is something that, I mean, most people listening will have already experienced some perhaps a bit more smoothly than others. And some may be listening to it in anticipation of that particular event. And it is something that I think doesn't get a lot of discussion, even though, as I know you will clarify for us, how important it is that we make space for that discussion and planning. But before we get there, before we even dive into this, I want to hear more about how you got interested in working with families in this, in so many capacities. It's not just one. I mean, you do the couples therapy, the hypnobirthing, um, lactation counseling. There's a whole lot that you're involved with. So how did that come about for you to bring you into these fields? Well, I, I got, I've ended up working with early, you know, early childhood and the formation of families. And I've gotten there in a bit of a circuitous way. In my early career, I started working in prisons and I was working with um, uh, violent crime criminals who were um, participating in a really amazing restorative justice program. And uh, through that experience, I came to find uh, that these, I was working with men in particular, but these valiant men had um, had really devastating early attachment experiences, a lot of um, violence and violation. And 
the way they were affecting the world as adults was so greatly influenced by that. Um, and so in a sort of second career, I went on to, to train to be a therapist and I wanted my focus to be around um, healthy attachment and, and helping to create a better space for infants to start their life. Um, and that has kind of two angles because the people who parent these children, they matter and they had whatever childhood they had. Um, and then the children matter. Uh, so for, for my work, I really have relished the opportunity to le learn about as a professional. I feel like I'm always learning, um, you know, a really broad range of things related, you know, from the magic of nursing and all of the science in that to, um, to some of the more social dynamics around how we respond and, and bond with our children. I think your background in the prison system is fascinating because I don't think many people go from there to where you are now. And yet it's such a logical pathway to, to see the outcomes of, you know, the struggles that kids can face at a young age right. on and going from there. And you said something that was really interesting about, you know, we have the parents and the kids. And I think that's going to be such a crucial touchstone point for us today, because you don't parent an absence of your own baggage that you come bringing to the table. And it's something I think we all think we can be these great, perfect parents, and we hold ourselves up to this high esteem that we can do. And it's not a realistic view, I don't think. And it's not, I, I know personally, when I think about my own transition, you know, there was a lot of ideas as to what it was going to look like. And the reality was, uh, quite different in many ways. And in some ways not there was, and we'll get into that. But so when I think about your parent yourself, you have two little ones. Um, how was your transition to parenthood, both yourself, but also as part of a dyad as a couple moving towards that transition? Yeah. Well, um, you know, now that I'm kind of immersed in the research, I can see some of the sort of red flags that can make pregnancy and early parenting kind of challenging in general. Um, but I had, uh, I, I love being a parent, I'll say, first of all, it's, it's truly a gift. And it's, I feel um, a really deep life purpose. So becoming a parent has been an amazing, life changing experience for me. Um, and with my first, with my son, um, my firstborn, uh, I had a difficult transition um, prenatally. Um, so I had a, a miscarriage that I had to have a kind of surgical intervention for that was slightly sort of traumatic. Um, but then I, I, we got, my husband and I got married that year. He had to do immigration process that was, you know, just in the climate we were in at the time was very stressful. Um, my dad got cancer and we were going through chemo that whole year. Um, I was finishing um, graduate school for my second master's. And so there was a lot happening that made me feel kind of uh, stressed and going into my birth disempowered. I ran late. I had to get induced. I had not wanted that. Um, but becoming a mother and giving birth was so transformative. I felt so much love for my son. And um, it was an amazing bond. 
Um, and I felt like my husband and I had prepared pretty well. I'm a therapist, so we talked about the importance of communication. Um, we're from different cultures, so we had really put intentionality into which rituals we wanted to bring in. Um, I felt like we had prepared. Uh, and then when we had our son, it was really in the micro moments that it was obvious we had not prepared for what we needed to prepare for. Um, as an example, within the first week, he had a fever and we had to decide what to do, you know, who, who to be calling and what kind of interventions were needed. And um, in the Gottman's work we're going to talk about, Gottman says every Every couple is the combination of two cultures, not because they're from different countries, but because they're from different families. So right here in the first week, we have to decide, you know, son of a doctor, uh, you know, daughter who wanted a lower intervention birth and didn't get it. How are we going to handle our son being sick at one week old? Um, and uh other other pieces where you know tensions run high, you have to make decisions. Our our son was very fussy. Um, how to soothe him? We had very different styles of soothing, and the tensions run high when your baby's crying and you feel so impotent to to help him. So um, it really kind of spiked my curiosity that I felt so caught off guard. Uh, by these little challenges when I thought we had prepared so much. And that got me interested in looking around because of my profession. Where is the research for this? Who is talking about this? Why was I not prepared more thoroughly for these aspects of the transition? And that's when I found Gottman's work and that he had done research about this and along with others. Um, and that was very illuminating and really shaped some of my my professional um, shift in focus. So let me ask, because as we mentioned, you have two children and I know there's really kind of, I want to say there's one transition to parenthood, but really I feel like there's more than that because the transition, the second time around, you have the benefit of what you kind of learned the first time and what you went through, but then it throws its own unique challenges and so how was your second transition? And, you know, were there more lessons that you felt had to come from that, that you've taken into your work now? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, Gottman and others are pretty clear that while there are major, major changes that happen with the first, and it is a big shift. We, we, we mark time, right? That moment before you're a mother or a father and after they're not the same. You're not the same, right? So that doesn't change when you have a second kid or a third. But um, there is still a kind of intense, because of the intense bonding, all those brain changes, there, there is still a lot of transformation that happens and change with subsequent children. That, and at least that's been my personal experience. It's like, you think, oh, I can't grow anymore. I can't. But wow, you do. Um, it's like a renaissance. It's been like a renaissance, you know, having another child. Um, and so the same is true in terms of pressures, right? We might predict the first is the most stressful. And I think in general, that's it's it's probably true that couples are trying to figure stuff out and they may have a bit more of a rhythm. But anything that inserts a new dynamic, you know, 
in fact, you know, some people argue it's a bit, you know, I think you have said in your work, when you go from a triangle to a square, right, a lot, a lot is at play. Um, so I think all of all of his research stands as valid. And it is um, there, there will still be challenges, stressors, um, because of because of what some of the stress points are like, sleeplessness, you know, you're going to go through a period of exhaustion where you're kind of get more, more frustrated with your partner sometimes, you know, that's going to happen with a second kid. Uh, um, and, and other aspects, but I would say, we can anticipate that it's a big change to add somebody to the family. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter whether it's the first or the second, even if it's in terms of your own philosophical frame, it's more significant for the first. Yeah. No. And that completely makes sense. And yes, I do. It's that transition from triangle to square because it, it's not just the added line. It's that you get extra lines in between to represent all of the relationships. So you go from, you know, three relationships or three sets of relationships to six sets of relationships. And that's a lot of pressure on especially the parents as well. That standing relationship, you're now navigating a lot of others as well. So also, parents have been trying to work out how each of them relate to their child and how they handle things. And do they agree about it or not? Are they in sync or not? And once there is a, a, another child, often a lot of behavioral things shift with the first. Um, and then there's more pressure on both parents to figure out uh, in a renewed way, how are we responding to this? Um, and sometimes a parent that's been a little bit more in the background has to step up. And that can be hugely healing to have both parents, they, they're needed, um, or it can be a little bit overwhelming um, for, for one or both. So as you mentioned, you've mentioned Gottman quite a few times. And that's because, as I said, when I introduced you, you are trained in Gottman's Bringing Baby Home program and Making Marriage Work, which is really the central focus of what we're going to talk about today. So, but not everyone knows Gottman's work. They don't know the framework with which you're working. And I think it would be really good if you're, if you can to yeah. kind of provide a bit of what is this framework? How are you in your work with families looking at, um, looking at the, the problem, I guess I'll say, I, I don't want to call it a problem, but it is. I mean, when couples are struggling, it's a problem. Mm -hmm. Um, and kind of what is some of the, the general information that people can take to kind of better understand this? So you're saying given, given Gottman's research. What's the framework for, that you're working from? When you work with families, like we know that there is a framework for working through families that Gottman has. There's an idea that is based on the research here. So what is this framework okay. sur that surrounds the work? Let me zoom out just for a minute to give a context for um, the the research and study of marital relationships or kind of couples in adulthood. Um, there are at least two really big players in terms of research, and um, it, and that's the Gottman Institute, uh, founded by Dr. John Gottman, um, and then uh, Dr. Sue Johnson and her work through the Center of Excellence for Emotionally Focused Therapy. And these two um, have been organizations have churned out a lot of research um, and they've but they've looked at relationships in different ways. So I kind of want to name them and then 
plug into how, how we're using Gottman's research. So emotionally focused therapy and its research really looks at us as bonding animals. We have to really have a strong connection with our babies. It's so much work to be a parent, right? It has to be so intensely bonding to be a parent that we'll do anything for our babies to keep them alive over time. And um, Johnson's work argues that when you reach adulthood, we actually forge a new bond that matters just as much. And that's the bond to our partner. And based on what we carry in from our family culture, whether we have really stable examples of secure attachment or not, um, we struggle to a lesser or greater extent. Um, and so Johnson developed this emotionally focused therapy or EFT as a model to create a space for listening and engaging for couples that's intended to create the secure bond over time that most couples are missing um, because most of us didn't see it modeled in a really consistent way. Um, so when, when we look at her research, we see that um, it is possible to really shift these things. Um, and it's also a very complex thing for a therapist to hold um, and a very beautiful thing to be a part of. Um, Gottman's research is different because Gottman, he looks at couples, but from an observational lens. He then captures that information and he tries to regurgitate it in such a way that couples can apply it to themselves. He also has a therapy model, um, but I would say he's best known for the work that he's done to make this accessible, like in the program that I teach. So his framework is to, um, to, to look at couples who thrive and look at couples who suffer. They're either unhappily married or partnered or they separate. Um, he calls them the masters and the disasters and to distill from their behavior, what is the difference and how can we pass that on so that you can spare yourself basically falling into some of those traps. Um, and his, so he, he disseminates that information through these workshops, through books that he's written, and they continue to produce research in all different areas. So really, I guess that kind of leads to the framework here is one in which you're just taking the knowledge of what has worked for others across many, many others, not just, you know, one study, but multiple studies and times to kind of integrate that into advice. Now, this leads to the question to me, uh, for me, at least when I always think about research that is based on these observational differences, um, it's not, do you think that these differences are always teachable? Or is there something that may be inherently different about these people? Do, do you have to have the right background for it? And I, let me just explain where I'm coming from briefly so that it makes sense. A lot of research, say, on sleep mm -hmm. tells you, no, 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 no. Look at all these kids that sleep longer were sleep trained. So therefore you must sleep train and you will too will have the baby that sleeps longer, for example. Well, no, lots of people sleep train and it doesn't work. And even when it quote unquote does, there's other issues there. But, you know, we take the idea of because something happens for some and it's correlated with something else, we therefore can disseminate it and it works for everyone. Mm -hmm. So is there in this framework, the, the knowledge that you can 
work with these elements to actually help shift people's um, outcomes, you know, from disaster to, to master? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think we have I think we have evidence in both directions. Uh, there's a wonderful book called Attached that looks at kind of how the the attachment literature and what what they find is sometimes a little bit of psychoeducation for parents when they have newborns, regardless of how much trauma a parent has had, can really create some different outcomes. Like sometimes a little psychoeducation goes a long way. Um, I think that's very applicable in this situation. You're entering parenthood, you don't know what to expect, or you're having another baby and you know there were some stressors, kind of give yourself a leg up, get oriented to what are normal stressors, what does it mean for your relationship? It's not the end of the world, this is something that will pass, what are some tools, whatever. Um, I think all of that's true. Is it also true that sometimes, especially in our most intimate relationships, things are complex enough that we're not going to fix everything in a workshop or reading a book? Right, for sure. And that's why, you know, I have total humility as a couples therapist that I will be, you know, in continuing education forever because it's very complex work and it's slow work and it's, it's something that um, couples will need the support of somebody to create that really safe space for slow, different kind of listening to take away blame, to have the, um, so th that's a, I think we have to say it's both. And we say it at the beginning of the workshops. We say, this is not going to fix all of your deeper relationship issues. That's not the point of this. And going to, to do deeper, you know, EFT or another kind of couples therapy can be hugely nourishing for a relationship and a really safe space. Um, but does it mean we shouldn't do psychoeducation? No. In fact, Gottman has run his course, which I can talk about later, but because he's a researcher, he's tested the course. And so he's done a control with it and found that it is really effective. Um, and I'd be happy to talk more about those results later. That's exactly, I was about to just ask actually, because that is exactly where I was getting at is it, you know, I think people do question does it always work? What is the evidence-based element of it? And I do know Gottman's a wonderful researcher and really hones into everything. So it's not surprising that he's done this and brought it out for people there. So I have so many questions and I'm going to try and go in a logical flow so that I don't have you going all over the place here. But this does bring me to the question of the research, because I think we, we need, a, people know it's hard they've transitioned to parenthood or they know they're transitioning and they have no idea what's coming up next mm -hmm. um, as a couple. But what do we know about the outcomes for families in terms of the, the link between marital quality pre and post that transition to parenthood? And in this particular research, if you're doing what these interventions can offer in terms of outcomes and I know I think some of these have even looked at child well-being. So I'd be very curious to hear that link to child well-being as well as to what are we looking to fix? Because I think it's one thing to say, I'm not worried whatever my relationship can wait and we can deal with it later, yeah. as opposed to, well, actually, there is this other 
element to it that isn't just about waiting till later, putting your relationship on hold for a moment, but actually acknowledging that it has an effect on those outside of the two in that couple's relationship. Right. Well, you're speaking to a lot of dynamics and please flag if I um, kind of miss returning to some of them. There's Gottman started his research on newlyweds. That's where he started in, in 1972. And since then, he's gone on to study um, over 4,000 couples, and some of them upwards of 12 plus years. So we have a lot of data to lean on. Um, and within that data, especially starting with newlyweds, we could, Gottman could see in his research that there there were certain things that happened in terms of the behavioral dynamics and emotional dynamics that could predict um, whether couples would divorce or stay together or whether they would stay unhappily married. And he could predict who would be divorced within five years to, with 94% accuracy and a little bit less accurate um, to 10 years, but still, um, it's pretty impressive. Uh, but across the field, not just Gottman, there became this bump that was like a tanking of satisfaction. And everyone's kind of trying to figure out like, it's like maybe different years, but somewhere in there, something has happened that people are consistently really, really unhappy together. Um, and when you zoom in, they've had a baby. Those first three years after having a baby, it's we see real drops. 69% of couples will report being very dissatisfied with their relationship uh, and in distress. Um, so that's alarming. Uh, it's alarming partly because out in the real world, we all want to post pictures of like happy times, you know, and don't want to think about anybody fighting at home, you know, so this is almost a bit of a taboo topic. Um, but, uh, but it's also alarming because zero to three is when the most brain development will happen for a child. So it's like right as couples are figuring this out and they may be struggling together is right when our babies are getting the most messaging about the world. And um, I, I love Gottman's work because he's trying to report, you know, but he's not reporting so that we can all point fingers and guess who's going to get divorced. He's trying to report in such a way that you can kind of grab the information early and use it. So his, his initial kind of program to share is, is distilling um, the 31%, right, that aren't in distress, that actually kind of glide through somehow. Can we just take the gems of what they're doing well? It doesn't mean they love each other all the time, but it does mean that they're not hitting kind of a real low spot. Um, and so he designs these, um, these programs. Um, but then because he is a researcher, he, he then says, okay, we've developed a program specifically for this intervention point, this moment when people are adding a baby to their family. And he tracks 220 couples who go through the program and 200 couples who don't, a control. And he looks at a number of variables over the three years. Um, Can I ask one question? Sorry yeah. to interrupt here, but just because it's come up with other researchers on the people who don't do the intervention, is it by choice or are they like a wait list control? Does he mention that? Yes, they are a wait list. And at three, 
they do the program and um, yeah, at three, they do the program. Sorry, I, I add that because if any of you have listened to some of the other researchers, it's so crucial that weightless control element mm -hmm. is such an important part because if you have people that aren't interested in taking an intervention, then there's a whole lot of other factors going into what may feed into later well-being and happiness. But when you have people that are equally motivated right. to do something, you're removing a large potential of bias in later results. So it's one of those crucial pieces. So that's just a little science note for anyone who wants to understand why your control group has to be of a certain way. So sorry, Nora, thank you. Go on. I just had to ask to clarify. Well, thank you for pointing it out because it also speaks to the results in the sense that you're, you're pointing to these being couples who want good results. They want to do their best. They're interested in this kind of support. And yet without the psychoed, right, which isn't everything, but it's, um, this is the, with the, in the, five session course that he designs, uh, they find that the couples who do it, they have less hostility between parents um, and greater connection, greater relationship satisfaction. They find that those parents are able to coordinate better in their parenting um, and that there's more father involvement um, and better relationships with the baby. Um, they also find that there's lower incidence of um, postpartum mood disorders and of uh, early baby blues. And there are some, uh, you've had other folks on talking about, you know, inflammation and the role of social support. We can really make sense of why it might be very impactful on mood disorders and, uh, and, and baby blues to have more, um, more connection, more orientation um, more support going into parenthood from your partner. And actually it, it leads so nicely into what, when I said I had so many thoughts coming on, one of them leads quite nicely here in that, how do you in your, and whether it's your work through running the Scottman program or as a couples therapist, handle the issue of society being a, a huge part of this? Like we are not in a supportive society. We are not at a stage where parents enter parenthood supported by the larger structures around them. They're, I mean, you're in the U.S. a lot of the time. You guys don't even have appropriate leave for new families. So do you see that as an added layer that you have to contend with? Or is it or is it something you just kind of have to accept and be like, it is what it is? How does it navigate into the couple's relationship, that, that environment that they're in more generally? Well, one of the things I love about Gottman is that he loves research and he is very happy to use anybody's good research. Um, so the course is not just his research. He brings in what's the, what, what do we know is the most up-to-date information about, um, infants needs about how they signal about what's the importance of responsiveness to a baby's brain development. So I think that part of the impact of that is that even though we're in a society that's for the most part going to be um, actually encouraging us to uh, reject our babies in a certain way, uh, that this is an authority space that affirms and has both parents listening that um, 
we have data about what infants need. And so that that just becomes a, a space for at least the couple to say, okay, there are all these norms. We can pick and choose how to use them in the West, but at least we've heard that the research says, you know, whatever it is, you can't spoil a one-year-old. At least we've heard that research. And, um, and that means, you know, we may have no grandmother involvement at all. We may have a grandmother who says we can't pick our baby up, whatever it is. Um, th th this gives parents a bit more, more of that shared language, at least. And that's, I mean, I know from my own work, and I'm sure in your, your couple's work too, debunking some of those yeah. cultural norms or, or myths, as I think they really are, yeah. um, is really important because I think people, when they have that knowledge base, it really does enable them to counter the little voices in their head that are telling them they're doing wrong and everything when they have that information to counter it. So let's get into the program in a bit more depth, if we may here. So as you mentioned, it's called Bringing Baby Home. What does it, you said five sessions, psychoeducational, helping families, but what is this? What is the psychoeducational piece that's helping families here? And what does it entail for parents? I also I will ask after, but if it comes up, you mentioned that these other groups got to do it at that wait list at age three. So I'm gathering, although it's bringing baby home, it is open kind of, you could have a two-year-old and be okay going for this particular course. Yeah. yeah. The course, the course could be a weekend retreat or it could be five sessions, but it's, um, about 12 hours of content that gets spread throughout um, that has some lecture component um, that has uh, videos, real, um, uh, his, some of his real families from that research that they videoed so you get to see. Um, and then it's also very experiential. Uh, everything that um, Gottman finds that masters do Couples get to kind of go offline and try it out. We know, you know, the masters keep love maps of their partner. They uh, stay curious about what's new, even when it could feel like the day to day, there's nothing new. So then there's a chance for couples to go off and actually do a little love map updating. So they've had the experience. In a way, it it captures his his research that stands um you know, with or without children. So it looks at what are the four variables that really are the greatest risk in terms of behaviors for divorce or deterioration? Um, what are the kind of uh, simple communication strategies that can support um, staying connected? You know, one is the soft start. You know, how how is it that when we open a conversation, research actually tells us within three minutes, we're, we know how that conversation is going to end. So we're um, giving, giving couples information about that and options, how to have a shared language to just start over when they need to. Um, it looks at uh, Gottman's research on um, uh, when, we, when we interact with our babies together what, when we're tense, what disorganizes and overstimulates a baby, and what are ways we can coordinate our interactions. This is really fascinating. And there's such cool videos on it, because 
most of us sort of think of our new babies are like, well, they'll be kind of lumps on a log and we'll just hold them. Right. But of course, they have totally different interactions with both of us and they're tracking how we interact with each other. So we get to really look at that in a fun way. Um, and then there are components of what's really unique about the transition to motherhood and fatherhood spaces for couples to reflect on what has it meant to be around mothers and fathers? How have mothers and fathers or those sort of figures influenced me and what are my hopes and fears about this transition? Um, and then we look at uh, the, the research about the importance of fathers, because there's actually some really good research um, that uh, second parent and fathers, you know, the research was done on fathers, play a really important role. And what is it? So we look at that. Um, there's a section where we look at um, postnatal depression and other mood disorders, which can be a very a lot of people take the class because of that. They're worried that they may be predisposed to it. And there is a lot of interesting research, practical, practical pieces that help couples to understand that we consider in the mental health field, perinatal mood disorders to be one of the most treatable and actually a pretty wide range of ways to address it. And then we have a section on child development and um, just as we spoke about before, the what what we know from the research about that in a way that allows parents to get excited about getting their reading their baby's cues and being responsive. And um, it's every class or every section is so distinct, but as a whole, it's a really kind of amazing experience for couples to get this uh, smorgasbord of what's to come. It normalizes it. We we talk about intimacy, what they can expect in terms of changes, because all these things are places where we can get caught off guard or where whether we like or not what's happening, we can look at each other and say, here we are. We got a little heads up about this. I love that. That is, um, I, I wanted to ask one quick question though, and I know you have a bit more to add there. And I'm just going to pop in that section. I'm going back to that section on babies interacting with mm -hmm. both parents together and their environment, I think is probably one of the most outstanding pieces for me of this, because as you said, yes, we all have our engagements with our babies. They have our relationships with us. And oftentimes that that's lovely. We each parent loves them. But as I always try to tell families, babies are, they may not speak, they may not know their names right away or whatnot, but what they are so good at is picking up on those nonverbal cues of the world around them because that tells them how safe they are. And you just think about, as you said, you know, this struggle for three years after, if it's unspoken hostility or anger that's going through or frustration with one another, you're really setting the stage for your baby's sense of the world as being in trouble or dangerous when really it might not be. And I'd never, you know, really thought about right away being able to talk to families about that as a couple. I often think about it in terms of some of our actions around the world, but not even how they're interacting with each other. So how do families take that? Like, how is that? Because it feels like that's, in some ways, could put more pressure on people like, oh, well, we can't be mad at each other. We can't do whatever. But to me, it feels like it's just acknowledging that that's the effects are there and how you cope with it. So is, is that 
how does it navigate into kind of this practical piece for people who might be afraid that now it means we can't even talk to each other if we're mad because we're just going to we're going to screw up our baby even more kind of fear that goes in? It's a great question. And there are two different components that 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 we speak to in, in the course. One is, as you're as you're naming, if we're just outright fighting, you know, what's the impact on our kids and how do we get that? And what does it mean to want to have a verbal interaction? And we know our kid is there. That's one thing. Um, the another is that whatever's happening between us, we're not really aware that it affects how we interact with our baby and how we coordinate with our baby. I think this is one of the most fascinating pieces for couples because it's so subtle that most of them haven't even thought to think about that. They haven't thought, first of all, that they could play with a three-week-old, but they definitely haven't thought that their three-week-old can pick up on something like that. So an example is a scene where a baby's in their chair and mommy's introducing a game And daddy introduces a new game, but he reaches across mom to start his game. So he's undermining mom, mom's game, but he's also physically blocking mom. And that that signals uncoordination of that couple. Something we wouldn't know to look for, we wouldn't know to name. But as you're saying, in a way, babies with less verbal acuity Actually, that really means something to them. And that can make babies feel kind of disorganized, overstimulated. Uh, and it, it, it's lovely for couples to see that there are way more ways to relate to their baby than they thought and to relate together. And sometimes I have couples say like, well, am I supposed to be doing this all the time? No, just like you said, sometimes you're just with your baby. You're just playing with your baby. But there will be moments when the two of you hold the space for your, for your baby and your baby is tracking both of you. And it's cool to know that your baby's tracking both of you, that your baby wants the three of you to be engaged in the play at whatever level they're capable of, um, and that it matters uh, how you interact with each other in that moment beyond like yelling at each other. We're talking about much more subtle things here. And that's really crucial. That subtleness is what I think becomes so hard because it's true. Like we, we are made up of a million subtle little moments and we don't even know necessarily. Like, I think we've all been in, maybe not you, but I know I've been in a situation where I felt just something's off about a scenario and you don't know exactly what it is, but it could be down to that little someone reaching in front, kind of physically blocking. And you don't pick that up really well, but you still get that vibe. You get that feeling of something's off here. This isn't good. But you said something that I want to ask about. Um, And I think that example may be something you said that the lack of coordination between parents also affects how we engage at an individual level with our babies. So can you give a bit of explanation around that as to what are kind of some of the effects that you see with this lack of coordination? That's, I think, one of the big, big pushes for Gottman to get this research out there, which is that when couples are not coordinating and when there is distress between them, it actually has a huge impact on babies, on their sense of safety on the world, on their ability to kind of signal and trust that their cues will be responded to. Um, 
some of the things that we see are that when there's, when parents are out of sync in a heterosexual couple where mom is, a, is spending more time with the baby, we see that in general, babies will withdraw from their fathers, uh, that there will, they will seek out their father or the second parent less often um, because there's tension somewhere and uh, they will stop looking to that person for comfort. Um, so that's a big impact on, on a relationship from this kind of discoordination. Oh, I am so glad you brought that up because I can think of all the families I've worked with where I think there's people see this. They are they're struggling because of either different expectations, different parenting plans, different realities. And one of the things that has frequently come up when there has been a father, and I know with the research, I just want to clarify we are talking about heterosexual couples because that's where the research has been done. There is so little on, I mean, there's so little on parenting in general because it doesn't get funded. I'm just going to say, but there is so little on any other family structure, but I think it's important to note that I don't think it, most of what we know is that it should be applicable across the board. We just don't have the research. So when we talk about the research, we are speaking specifically to people in there. Um, but yeah, these families, it's like they see it's this compounding problem of they're struggling, but then they're like, I don't even think my kid likes me. I can't even spend time with my kid. And then it becomes almost a blame game of your turning your your parenting is turning the kid away from me is what comes up. And it, it's not. And I always see it. I think what you might agree with is that What's happening is that you have a child who feels unsafe if they're spending the primary time with someone who is their safety, their primary safety person, they are going to turn to them more and move away from the source of potential distress. Is that not consciously, this isn't a concerted plan of what's going on. It's just survival. I'm going to go where life is safe and I'm going to do. But then I think about the, the follow-up of that is a really unhappy triad or, you know, not going on because it's multiple fractures in the relationships as they go. It's, I, yeah. Sorry, no, go ahead. I think it's, it's important to flag that these are subtle shifts that um, parents feel and name, but we're not talking about safety, like, you know, they think they're going to die. We're talking about this kind of sense of who do I feel most grounded with and who, who can I go to when I'm in distress? Um, and when there's tension between a couple, there tends to be a, the selection of one parent to lean into. The flip side of that is that the research shows that in general, when there's tension and stress, the father, again, in a heterosexual couple, will also tend to withdraw. So it becomes reinforcing. We see the child may withdraw from the father, but the father might withdraw from the child. And this has reasons that also make sense because they may be more absent anyway. They may be carrying more stressors financially and perhaps not now, but still we see a disequilibrium in terms of wages and also who's working and not. So if the father has withdrawn on a certain level, when he comes back, it's not going to be overnight that the child is responsive. And 
that and that takes work. So that's hard if you've already withdrawn and you're feeling sensitive. Now it takes extra work to reconnect and plug back in. Um, that can feel like a losing proposition for dads. Um, that can be tricky. I wonder how much also comes from, as we know in our culture, there's a very, we tend to um, to toughen up boys more. We withdraw more from young boys when they're still developing as young children and they should be independent. They should be tough. And, you know, boys don't cry all of those kind of mantras that go into it. I feel has a role in contributing to some of this withdrawing that happens with babies. Babies are the epitome of neediness. And I can just imagine how triggering some of that distress they feel can be if you've never been able to truly express distress and have it be accepted and welcomed. Mm -hmm. And I think it speaks also to where, you know, the flip side of where dads can shine. We talk about dads having a very unique role in play and the kind of highs and lows of dramatic play and how important that is to a child's development, how essential a warm father figure is to a, to a child's growth. And there's really interesting research about that. But when a baby is in distress, those skills may not work that well, right? And in fact, they might overstimulate a baby. And that can be a negative cycle for dads feeling like I'm not able to soothe the baby the way I wanted to. I can thrive sometimes, but here are these other situations where I feel like I don't have the right tools in my toolbox. So, you know, parenting in general is an exercise of humility and it can be very, very difficult to feel those limitations and work on them. And, and we're all get triggered anyway in parenting more so than other spaces. So it's kind of a lot of layers that when we teach about this, Part of it's just normalizing it, you know, and saying there are lots of barriers to dads being as involved as they actually want to be, but hopefully understanding the essentialness of your role, how much you matter can be a part of giving you that extra oomph to show up. It sounds like some of this is helping people pick their buckets that they have that they can shine in is, as you said, and knowing that just just because you can't shine in all the buckets doesn't mean the buckets you shine in are irrelevant. That it is, you have to be able to kind of split this up a bit because it is, it's teamwork. And, you know, I think about, I, I did swimming in high school. So I think about like the relay race, right? And I did backstroke. That was mine. You would never put me in for like butterfly because I would have fallen to the bottom of the pool and just sucked. Like it is acknowledging that we don't have to do the whole thing. There are people that seem to be able to do it all, but really it seems like a huge component of this is really getting people to kind of take stock of where they can shine as opposed to saying you have to shine everywhere. Is that a fair assessment of some of what is going on in these courses and for people? Yes. And that most of us have had so little exposure really to the ins and outs of parenting that, thank God, we have a maternal and paternal instinct that turns on that sometimes our hospital system undermines, etc. But if we didn't have that, we really don't know a lot about babies. So another purpose of this program is to, to you know, in a light way, really orient 
parents to information they just authentically might not have. When we talk about the importance of touch, it's not that babe, parents do or don't want to touch their kids or like you're saying, one person might do more breastfeeding, they have a breast and another parent might do more skin to skin in a carrier. But if parents don't know what what the science says about the importance of touch to regulate temperature and uh, emotions, etc., then they're at a disadvantage. So Gottman is really pooling all of this together to absolutely say, let's take stock of where you can shine and how you can collaborate also. And let's expose you to a bit more of the research that will make you feel informed and confident in a context where you're bringing home a new baby, you may not have been with another new baby. And there is a lot to learn. I think this just brings me right back to that societal piece again of not just a lack of supportive society, but it's true. So many people in our culture aren't raised around kids all the time. They haven't seen all of it. You think about cultures where it is much more tightly knit. People, you know, siblings are helping raise younger siblings. Everyone's surrounded by it. They don't have these questions about parenting because it's socially learned throughout their entire life. Those roles become more defined, and you're exposed to seeing it. And I think just even you're a, you're a lactation counselor, but we talk about the importance of seeing breastfeeding to be able to feel like you can do it. And I do see so many people start it and they've never even thought about it. They've never seen someone breastfeed. They have no idea. And I know I, I credit my own success breastfeeding with having grown up and just with the age difference between me and my siblings, seeing my mom nurse my brother and sister till they were, we all weaned between three and four and years, not months for anyone, if they need to question that, but that is, and it was just so valuable to have it in my head that I just saw what was normal. And I think this is such a great way to counter a society that doesn't have that awareness and that seeing it throughout life constantly for people that need that. Mm -hmm. And, and as I was mentioning before we got on that there are real physiological shifts that are happening, yeah. you know, epigenetically that you might actually, it, it may not be the same playing field anyway, uh, in the sense that when you know, babies, for example, this cutting edge research I was sharing with you that if babies are not getting adequate air from the mother because the mother has um, whatever, a narrow airway, just because she didn't get hard food and form her jaws is all kind of, um, you know, maybe too much for right now. But all of that influences the message a baby's getting and how the baby physically is. So it also means we're dealing with new challenges that just having been around other babies um, you know, 30 years ago, and then, you know, within three or four generations, you could pretty radically change. I think sleep habits are also another example. You could be around a lot of babies and see how sleep gets handled. It's not necessarily how we want to handle sleep. That's why we love the research. So we can, we can get curious about it. Um, this is the bind for parents, right? The lack of exposure, but then also getting curious, whether what's become culturally normative is the way that we want to be parenting. And, and when we do the research, we can be at choice there. 
I'm just going to quickly add in on sleep because I can't help myself. It is fascinating, though, that it's pretty much universal that cultures that are quite responsive and you, you do grow up with much more involvement from others tend to co-sleep and tend to be responsive at night. That there is something about seeing that relationship that seems to almost go hand in hand with that nighttime parenting as well um, that goes. But that's just a little aside there on sleep. But I want people to know that when you look cross-culturally, co-sleeping is far more normative than our solitary cribs in separate rooms and so to speak. So I want to go back to something because I, I think it's important to talk about quickly. There is this idea, as we mentioned, the wait list got people in at three years of age for this one of those studies that we talked about. But we also have talked and you mentioned, you know, the first three years is the most malleable of the infant brain. And so when we have these struggles, we really are setting the stage for stress reactivity, emotional reactivity, et cetera. What do we say to families that hear all this? think back to their relationships, but they're outside that three-year zone. As a therapist and as someone who is well-versed in the research on how this affects child development, do we tell them, you know, I mean, clearly we don't, but facetiously, do you say, sorry, you're out of luck now? Um, or is there a better way to kind of frame it? Is, is it all lost at that stage? What are What do we have on the gains that might be made post three years for the child? Mm -hmm. Yeah, It's an important question to ask because we all come to different insights at different times. And when you're starting with a new baby, you have to pick and choose what you're going to try to become an expert if you even aspire to that. Um, and it may be, you know, two years in, you learn about something or five years in. Babies, children, they only get one set of parents. From my perspective, it's never, ever, ever too late to return and try to do something different to be, um, to create and model healthier dynamics with our children because children will never, ever have other parents to go to. They have can have an extended circle, but doing our best with our children always matters. And many of us have the pleasure and opportunity of actually getting to do some healing work with our parents in adulthood. And even that is transformative. So as a, as a parent, we never want to think it's too late because our children will never give up wanting to have closeness, responsiveness, connection, respect from us. Um, I love that. That is, um, yes, it is never too late. I'm going to add a little piece of research, though, and I don't know if you know it, but you can bring it to the table later if you can. Uh, Megan Gunner at the University of Minnesota has done work that recently came out last year on the fallout. She, she looks at kids that were institutionalized mm. and then adopted out in the first three years of life, but um, sometimes as late as that third year. And they go to these these loving homes. They're well cared for. They're nurtured. They are, are loved. But throughout childhood, they see in the stress response certain maladaptive patterns that continue. And for years, as they followed these kids, we all thought, I guess it's just this is set in stone. And 
lo and behold, the kids started hitting adolescence in the last few years. So they started tracking and adolescence is another period of great brain plasticity um, and growing. And it seemed that those children who had a steady loving home throughout childhood, although we didn't see shifts in childhood, started shifting in adolescence after and started mirroring not all of the stress patterns, but some of the maladaptive ones that by the end of that adolescence period, kind of 13 to 16, um, they actually had patterns that were indicative, that were, were akin to children who, I guess they're not children, well, they're still children at 16, but adolescents at 16 who had been in loving homes all along. Mm-hmm. that you now lost that maladaptiveness. Mm-hmm. And so because this is new, I know it's still going to open up the doors to so much more research and this kind of shifting, but it does seem to me, and it, and it goes along, Jay Belsky did work on uh, the kind of orchid dandelion, that sensitivity to one's environment, and found that some kids who were highly sensitive as kids after that adolescent shift seemed to not be. Mm-hmm. not, And some remained. It was, you know, all different directions. But I think it really highlights to us, to me, that even if you don't see immediate rewards from it, don't count it out. That for me, I always view parenting as like the ultimate end game of you don't know when that bit of effort you put in is going to pay off. But I do believe that chances are it does. And I don't know if you feel like as a therapist and as working with this, that that is kind of a a mantra to take home, because I do think it's important for people to realize it doesn't always pay off right away. You won't. It it can be a lot of hard work that you have to plow through and it's still worth it, even if you don't see the immediate results. Mm -hmm. Babies and all of us, we learn by imitation. And when we have any kind of modeling that we can imitate that's positive, that's all to the good. Uh, Sometimes it takes a while to see the payoff. I would say the reverse is true. Sometimes we can have a lot of tension early on and we might not be able to see the impact. It's later on that we might see that a child isn't doing as well or has a strained relationship with one parent or the other, um, that mealtimes have become a real trigger for a child. Uh, that they're starting to want to limit their own eating because they've been so stressed at a meal. So it it can go both ways that um, when we model what we want to see, we don't see the result right away, but we might see it over time. And it may also be we've been doing something that's been undermining our child and we see the result later on. That allows, uh, in Gottman's work, for him to make certain recommendations that we can follow, for example, making up in front of a child. If we've been, um, if there's been a disagreement, clarifying what's going on, allowing children to ask questions. We don't have to be perfect, but once we start to understand that children are, are, are imitating, are mirroring us, that that's how they integrate and learn, we can have second chances um, to do some of that. And I love your example of that research because surely those couples who are raising those children, very difficult circumstances, surely not perfect all the time, but some of those parents are able to model and come back uh, and make a mark on the child that signals it's okay. We're all human. This is how we repair. This is how we um, uh, this is how we make up. This is how we show we love each other. 
uh, and that when it comes time for the brain to grow in another leap and bound, that that starts to get integrated and really show up in a clear way. I always, I, I want to first, I'm so happy you mentioned the, the flip side to that, because it's true. You see people talking all the time of, oh, well, this happened, this happened, but the kid's fine. And you're talking about a three-year-old going, you know, I'm, I'm not quite sure we can just write that off as having no effect because, and I'm not saying it does too, definitely have an effect. It's that we're just too early to tell what's going on. And I think that always kind of comes down to what you were saying is if we just model what we hope we want our kids to, to be and to experience and to see, it's hard, but eventually they get there. And that's one of the hard things to share in the course, but a motivating factor that actually it is definitively true that the dynamic between the parents will be one of the greatest factors in influencing a child's mental health and how um, how healthy they are also physically over time. Because when we feel um, we can talk about what's going on, we don't have to bottle things up, and we feel the people around us are holding a space for us, our immune system has to do less work. So unfortunately, we know, we know definitively that when there's a lot of distress in front of children, that that has a negative impact on their mental health. And that's a part of Gottman's motivation is let's get the word out early. We can't avoid that this will happen, um, but let's see if we can take our relationship seriously enough to give it the kind of nurture it needs to have this not become a default. Beautifully put. So with that, I know we're at time here. I feel like I could just keep talking about all the different nuances of this because there are so many. It is, it's such a fascinating step because I will say, I mean, I'll be honest, from my own perspective, I had ideas about parenting. I was very lucky that I did see a lot of parenting. I kind of alloparented as a young, you know, my sister's 14 years younger than I am. So there is a lot of time that we spent, you know, I would she would come stay with me at university in the dorm and we'd co-sleep for, you know, a week, you know, it was just like, and she was default with me. That was, everyone thought she was mine. Um, and that was kind of what we would do for ages. And, um, so I had that experience. And so I didn't feel like that transition to parenthood was as difficult, but it certainly was different in the relationship and that I hadn't planned on. I think like, I mean, probably way less than you, you at least had an idea. We've talked about all this, we really didn't. We were just in as we go and thought it would all be the same. And there was a lot of learning curves to go along with that. And so it was really interesting. So for me, I want to ask you, for people listening, because there's there's so much more here. And I do recommend for people, like John Gottman's work is incredible. Um, you can look it up. There's, there's so much online at the Gottman Institute. But also these courses, Nora's not the only person doing this course in the world. There's lots of places that if you, wherever you live, that you can take this. Um, but for you, for closing here, one piece of advice for parents that are, are struggling in their relationship with their partner, whether they have a new baby, whether they have a three-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 15-year-old, based on all you know and your experience, both doing this course, but also as a couples therapist, what is the one thing that you can say, if you just start one thing now, the first little baby step, that you can take, what would it be? 
That's tough. Just one thing. I might share a couple things, but I'll try to do it in a concise way. Gottman loves to reference, like I said, he loves research from others. And he uh, meets with a colleague who is studying which, which intervention is most effective. He's comparing, I think, uh, like an immersion therapy with a spread out multiple weeks. And he says to Gottman, you're not going to believe this. This is such a blow. I haven't gotten any results. The only difference between couples who relapse and couples who don't after a period of time is that the couples who don't relapse are talking about their external stressors with each other every day. And Gottman's like, that's brilliant. I'll take it. He loves it. And, and actually, it is a significant finding because I could recommend just go to, a, you know, get into some therapy, get some support for your relationship. It's a lovely thing to do. And it's very nourishing for your relationship. But in the day to day, something simple is making space 20 minutes a day. That's all to have 10 minutes for each of you to just be listened to, to talk about your external stressors. Not a time to complain about the relationship or something that you don't like, a time to bring in, oh, I'm really struggling with this thing at work. Not have it be fixed, not have it become an hour long conversation and to have your partner really just listen with empathy and express some empathy and that's it. That as a ritual, daily, again, rather than saying, oh, once a month, we go for a hike and really catch up. Just those touch points of staying on each other's radar with the things that you're carrying um, is something that we have seen through research to be very sustaining for couples. The other thing I want to say, because this is also about, you know, babies, is that a kind of apply to everybody advice is around touch that we know that touch is such a regulator, uh, helps us all feel the sense of belonging, connection, you know, safe, loving touch, that if we're too busy to really be, you know, sitting down, sometimes when you have a three-year-old or a four-year-old, you don't get to talk at all the whole day. Um, if you make time to just the pat pat on the back as you're walking by, the hug and kiss when you arrive, um, touch for your children, building in touch and learning more about the importance of touch as a tool, um, I think can be really, really important to help regulate families and keep everybody feeling connected and, and close. I love both. And I'm going to follow up with one question about touch because I too have talked to families about the importance of touch. What I see happen a lot and where the struggles tend to come in, and especially with younger kids, primary caregiver feels touched out because mm. there is a lot of touch sometimes, especially if you have a, a more sensitive, higher needs, et cetera, infant, uh, you can feel completely touched out. And then it seems like the partner loses even more touch because that goes down. And so there becomes this disconnect. In those cases, what kind of, I, I love that you mentioned the pat on the back that can be doable, um, but are there other ways to facilitate touch that may not be triggering for someone who is feeling overwhelmed by touch 
due to the parenting role that they or the stage that they're in? Yeah, well, it's really important to normalize in early parenting that for many, being physically intimate and switching into that brain is just not even on the table, that having uh, even kind of an extended cuddle may be just too much, uh, given all of that. So I appreciate you naming that because that's that's a part of our job if we want to talk connect to couples is to normalize that this is a part of that transition, that how we have touched each other before may not be the same in this season of our life. Um, and, and so the advice is reconnect emotionally, create some kind of connection and belonging with each other as soon as you can. Make that a priority because for that partner, just like you're saying, uh, from the, the parent who's doing a lot of caregiving, it's like, well, I'm just exhausted. I'm touched out. For the other person, that may be a huge loss for them. And so for both partners to name, it may not be giving you exactly what you want, but it, it is a priority that we have closeness and connection in one form or another. And it might be building in just the 10 minutes to check in, like that might be enough. It might be like you said, having that conversation, like, you know what, but you know, the cuddles around my waist are just too much, but I would love to, you know, walk holding hands. I can do that. Or um, because our skin is one big organ, it's just one organ. So also thinking about ways that feel okay. Um, as long as the partner is getting touch, that may not satisfy them completely, but it's a really important placeholder, both to name, right, that this is a loss and it's a rough transition to normalize it and to say, and it's a real need and it's an important need. And there are ways that we can meet each other's need for closeness, connection, touch, right, that will be, that will feel um, honoring, even though we're in a certain season that will limit kind of the way things were before. I love that. That need for connection is so crucial. And I, I do think it helps, as you said, just kind of naming it, but also from the other partner, acknowledging it's not you. It's not that I don't want to touch you. It's that I'm just touched out and I still love you and I would love to touch you. Sometimes we just need to hear that it's not us, that it is something that, you know, is kind of external. It's not a personal attack. It's uh, I don't want anyone touching me at this point. And I still want to be connected to you, but touch is just not the part there. So Nora, thank you so much for this. This has been so enlightening. And I, I love this topic because it really is, it feels like it's one of those ones that just doesn't get enough airtime. Yeah. Uh, people really don't even think about that transition. And, you know, it is such a big piece of, I mean, I see it all the time in sleep problems, the relationship problems that come along with that. And so I think this is such a great way to frame ways to look at the scenario and how to step forward from it. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us and help people understand what this is. And, you know, this may be a course for some people, or they may just take those first two little tidbits of information and go from there and see what they can do. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you having me on because like I said at the beginning, I think this becomes a taboo. It's very easy to talk about how you're handling sleep or feeding um, or any number or discipline and not be talking about what's happening in your 
in your partner relationship and how that's affecting all of it. Uh, and so it's a, it's a gap. We can't really speak to anything else without looking at how the dyad is handling it and you're giving it some airtime. And I think that's important. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. That's it for this week. I hope this has helped you in navigating any struggles that you may be facing in your relationship that you think is due to parenthood, whether it's your first child or your fourth child that you're welcoming. Next week, I welcome Dr. BJ Epstein-Woodstein to discuss her new book on LGBTQ parenting. If you think preparing for parenting is hard for cisgender and heterosexual couples, imagine doing it without supportive healthcare providers, legal barriers, or even the intrusive questions that can come from everyone around you. If you think this isn't relevant for you because you yourself are not an LGBTQ parent, you're wrong because the advice that Dr. Woodstein provides is what we all need to be better allies to those parents who need it. In the meantime, stay safe and happy parenting.